the blessedness of God. Perhaps we need to begin just with a few definitions and um, in order to help us in our right understanding of this. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word to bless uh, occurs many times in the first chapter of Genesis. God blessed them. Uh, He blessed the fish, he blessed the fowls of the air, saying, be fruitful and multiply. And later in the book of Genesis, God is seen to bless not only these particular creatures and beings, but to bless man. And he blessed Noah and his sons. And uh, of Abraham it is written, I will bless thee and make thy name great. And in the passive form it occurs uh, that Abraham was blessed. Blessed be Abraham. To be blessed is to be brought into a state of material prosperity so that you know long life, you have children, you have wealth, you have safety, you have peace. These temporal mercies constitute blessing. And sometimes it is used with respect to uh, spiritual prosperity. As in the Psalms, for example, blessed is the man uh, in Psalm 1, who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And we read that uh, in Psalm 2, that blessed is the man that trusteth in Thee, Psalm 32, the blessedness of the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord doesn't impute iniquity. So to be blessed is to be prospered in such a way that there's a development of the word bless to mean that if a man is blessed, he experiences blessedness or happiness. In the New Testament, the Greek word for to bless is usually uh, eulogio, which uh, literally means to speak well of. And it uh, generally uh, has the same meaning as the word bless in the Old Testament. It's to cause, to prosper. So we read in the Gospels, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. But more generally, it's used of the blessing of a man with spiritual benefits. So the Lord is said to bless his people at the end of Acts 3. And Ephesians 1.3 tells us that we are blessed 
in Christ in heavenly places with all spiritual blessings. So to bless in the New Testament context is also to bring prosperity, whether it be uh, temporal or spiritual. And in that prosperity and that experience of blessing, we shall be happy and hence blessed. There is a word used of God uh, in 1 Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 11, where it speaks of something be according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 1 Timothy 1, 11. And that is one place where God is said to be blessed in the sense of being happy. It's no reference to the source of blessing or the conveyance of blessing. It means that God is happy in himself. Makarios. And it is uh, used of man in the New Testament. And the same word is used in the, in the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed there means the really happy man is the man with a pure heart who is able to behold the glory of the Lord. So it's used of man, but in these two places, 1 Timothy 1.11 and then 1 Timothy uh, 6 and verse 15, in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. So in those two instances particularly, 1 Timothy 1.11 and 1 uh, Timothy uh, 6 and verse 15, blessedness is something which uh, pertains unto God and is attributed to God. Now, S.W. Green in Hastings Dictionary of the Bible says, Biblical blessedness represents a conception of happiness. So if we return to those two verses, speak of the blessed God, it means that there are places in Scripture where God is described as truly happy. And perhaps this is a, a notion and a concept that we're not over familiar with. And it might appear to be strange language for us to speak of God as a happy God. But I hope to show that that is what the scriptures do reveal of God. I think all who knew 18th century Scottish history will know that John Brown of Harrington was a very careful man in his definitions and uh, very measured in his language. But Brown of Haddington says this, God is blessed. He is infinitely happy. 
in himself and adorned with the highest praise of his creatures. Infinitely happy in himself. And we do read in scripture of that happiness in various connections. God is said to delight in his loving kindness. Delight in it. Brings him pleasure. To feel it, to express it, to perfect it. We know in Micah seven eighteen that it is written that he delighteth in mercy. Judgment as where is said to be his strange work. Something he, he, he must do because he is God but he doesn't have a heart for it. But he has great enjoyment in the uh, conveyance of mercy. That is what he loves to do. And that is what he is known to do. And he is said in one place at the end of uh, Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, to rejoice over his people with joy and to joy over them with singing. That's remarkable, isn't it? That that sort of language is used of God. He rejoices over his elect with irrepressible joy and he breaks out into singing he's so happy with them well all I want to show in these opening words is that blessedness is a reality and it's possible for a man to be blessed and to be truly happy as in the Beatitudes but it is true that God is blessed and our happiness is poor and feeble compared to his divine joy which he has and feels and knows perpetually. So I want to divide this address into two parts and uh, the first part is the doctrine of divine blessedness and the second part will be the experience of divine blessedness. So the doctrine, first of all, the doctrine of divine happiness. If blessedness denotes a state of prosperity, and I think I've shown that it does, uh, then happiness is the enjoyment of that prosperity or that blessing. Edward Lee, who as far as I know was the only Puritan who produced a body of divinity and a very great folio of learning it is, he says we must conceive God's happiness to be in the enjoyment of himself who is the greatest good God is happy, he says. God is happy. 
And that goes against the grain of some people's views of Puritanism. <laughs> they don't speak like that. Um, God is so serious as to uh, remove all sense of joy from us, according to what some say of the Puritans. But here's a Puritan of mainstream saying, God is happy. I looked at that twice and I thought, are you sure it's a son? <laughs> and there it is, God is happy. And Lee goes on to say, first, uh, formally, in himself, which implies, one, there is no evil of sin or misery in him. Two, that uh, his abounding with all possible good contributes to that happiness. So he's without evil and he's replete with good. And thirdly, Lee says, he is immutably happy because he is essentially so. It belongs to God's very nature to be happy. Blessedness, therefore, is the good which is most desirable and most delightful. God is himself the most desirable good. And he is so not only in himself, but to himself, so that he finds what he is to be a source of pleasure. He's fully satisfied in what he is, and he rests eternally content with what he is. Lee goes on to say, God is an infinite blessedness in and to himself. Thomas Goodwin, another Puritan, says this in uh, a section of his works called The Knowledge of God. He says, God delighteth in his own glory. God's blessedness lies in his enjoying himself and his own glory. Let me give you one other quote from Thomas Manton. God is blessed in an active sense. God is blessed with respect to himself as he is the fullness of perfection and contentment. God's blessedness is that attribute by which the Lord from himself and in his own being is free from all misery and enjoyeth all good and is sufficient to himself and content with himself. Or, Manton says more shortly, God's blessedness is the fruition of himself and his delighting in himself. His happiness lieth in knowing himself in loving himself, in delighting in himself. God that is blessed hath enough for himself 
I am God, all-sufficient. God finds satisfaction and happiness in the enjoying of himself. Well, these are profound words, aren't they? Written by great minds. God is the greatest good. The summum bonum, as the philosophers call it. The very best good of all. Uh, excluding all evil. Containing within his being all good. Unchanged. Unchangeable. The happiness he knows is uninterrupted. And it is eternal. Therefore, there is satisfaction in him. Both rest and happiness in him. God is thereby perfectly at ease and perfectly fulfilled in his emotions. And as we shall see, we also are blessed in God. So blessedness denotes a state of prosperity, and happiness is the enjoyment of it. God, because of who he is, is the ultimate in prosperity. He is everything that is conducive to God, everything that is becoming to God, and nothing that might be improper in the way of evil or in the way of sin. So God, God has happiness in the enjoyment of himself. Now the second point I want to make is this. Although God cannot adequately be conceived and we have the language of the book of Job for this canst thou by searching find out God canst thou find out the almighty unto perfection although that be true yet God has revealed what he is and scripture declares that God is a spirit and he's called the father of spirits that means that God has a being or substance somewhat like to the angels and to the souls of men. But he is pure, uncreated, underived spirit. It also means that he is immaterial, possessing no physical body, and therefore has none of the limitations of the human frame and none of the dependencies of that state of being. He is immaterial. He is a personal spirit. He is pure spirit. He is immaterial. He is personal. At the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am not it is, as if he was describing himself in some impersonal way. Dabney says, 
in his systematic theology. We know spiritual substance as that which is conscious, which thinks, which feels, which wills. And then uh, that substance is what God is in his thought, in his feeling, in his willing, a personal spirit. To develop this, he is also invisible, immense, incomprehensible, a spirit, and he is mysterious, the ultimate secret of the ages. And this God, who is spirit, is the original spring and fountain of all our mercies. And he is the source of his own love. And that love of God is either benevolent or beneficent or complacental, meaning that that love is expressed in wishing good for others, benevolence, or doing good to others, beneficent, or complacental, delighting in others and in their state of being loved. Now, the Confession of Faith states quite clearly that although bodily parts and members are ascribed to God, like eyes and ears and hands, they are figuratively uh, understood in this connection. And in uh, the same section of the Confession that speaks of passions uh, being sometimes ascribed to him, and uh, these passions are not as men uh, feel passions, vehement passions sometimes, fiery, revengeful, wrathful, foreboding. And so they also need to be rightly understood. But underneath it all, there is love, and it's that love which makes him so lovable, and it's that love which makes him such a happy being to know. How can we love something that is detached and remote and estranged from us in some way, but we warm towards someone who is friendly disposed to us, somebody who cares for us, somebody who is there when we need him, and such is God. So he is a lovely being, and that's why God loves himself, because never was there anyone more lovely than he is. The principal object of that love of God is himself. 
and uh, he loves himself so much because he is the perfect being and there's nothing negative to say about him there's nothing uh, that can be said of him which is detrimental in any way to his absolute glory and surely it's for this reason brethren and that God has made uh, his glory the end of everything he does and thinks and works. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Why would he make it for another? He is the most wonderful of beings. He knows it. It doesn't produce pride in him. But it is born of knowledge that there is no being like his being and therefore that is the end to which he turns everything and it is to glorify himself that he made the world and preserves it and philosophers may uh, wrestle with that uh, why I remember a young man saying to me it doesn't seem a bit self-centered that God made everything for his own glory no because he only has the glory worthy of being the end of God's purposes and his works. Now the third thing to say, we're developing the doctrine still, other uh, wonderful qualities and characteristics are ascribed to him uh, beyond his prosperous being, beyond the fact that he's a spirit, uh, a loving spirit. But we read in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. These are what we ascribe to God and we run out of words, as David did, because he is so excellent. He defies definition. He defies vocabulary. Human speech is rendered helpless in order to set forth the wonders of this God. And there are, as you will well know, amongst the characteristics or attributes of God, some are said to be incommunicable. And I'll define that in a moment. But others are said to be communicable. Incommunicable is a way of referring to those attributes that belong only to God and cannot be communicated to others. And there is no resemblance of them, therefore, in others. We're talking about attributes like infinite, eternal, unchangeable. These are peculiarly divine and exclusively divine. But there are also communicable attributes. Those characteristics which are in God, which are shared with others because they are granted to others so that they appear in others. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, 
goodness, which includes mercy and grace, long-suffering, and so on. We assert from the testimony of Scripture that God is blessed in himself. That is, he has in himself all these qualities. And some of them totally unknown in the creature experience or in the creature's possession. And it all makes up a God who is wonderful. The divine attributes come into play here, and some of them especially. Let me just mention them briefly. Being. God's life is in himself. It's not derived. It's not given him by another. It's not created by some outside force. He has life. Being perfection. Jesus spoke of his Father in heaven being perfect. Just imagine a being, every characteristic of, of which cannot have a flaw in it. There's no shadow upon any revelation of God because he is light, perfect, pure, undiminished, unfading, everlasting, light, perfection, and all-sufficient. He wants nothing from outside himself. So if we can descend to speak in this way with due reverence, if we said to God, is there something you're missing? Something which would make your joy to be elated and it would make your happiness greater than it is God would answer. I speak after the manner of men. There is nothing. There is nothing that I lack. And he has knowledge. He knows what he's like. He knows his eternal power and Godhead. God only knows the nature of God. And you can imagine that God searching and subjecting his whole being to scrutiny and concluding thus, there is no fault in me. Just sublime perfection. And eternity will come into play here. He reposes peacefully in his perfection. And he doesn't need to be restless for something to complement his happiness in some way or supplement it. He's perfectly happy. You know, the old question used to be asked in Hyde Park, 
to the preacher was, well, what was God doing before he created the world? There was the numerous answers to that. One preacher said, make it a hell for people like you. <laughs> a short answer. But perhaps a better one is this. What was God doing before he created the world? He was resting in himself. In perfect and solid uninterrupted happiness and I think this is important because I've heard well-intentioned preachers of the gospel saying uh, that God uh, well they don't say it like this but this is what comes across that God was rather lonely and therefore he made a plan of redemption that he would have company in heaven my dear friends God doesn't need us and he doesn't need our company to make his happiness greater if only God existed he would be perfectly unchangeably blessed in himself and that's where Bavinck comes in and Herman Bavinck in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics volume 2 he says this when ascribed to God blessedness has at least three components in the first place it uh, expresses that God is absolute perfection in the second place it lies in that God knows and delights in his absolute perfection and in the third place it constitutes this that he is not in process of becoming what he isn't there is no evolution in God. He is uninterrupted rest, satisfaction, and everlasting peace because he's fully blessed in himself. Now, point four here, and I hasten on. There is but one God. We are told that. There is but one only living and true God. But in this one God, there are three personal, distinguishable uh, elements. And we know these as the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're talking about the happiness of God, and we must bring in the Godhead here. And he is happy in the company of himself. And that is why scriptures uh, represent it in that very way that the Father loveth the Son and that the world may know that I love the Father, Jesus said, let us go hence. So there is mutual love in them and exchanges of love. And so God was, was never lonely within the three persons of the Trinity. There was love. God is love. Every person is love. Each person loves the other person and all three love all three persons. Perfect society. 
Dr. Gill says happiness in himself must be perfect and complete. Now happiness lies not in solitude, but in society. And hence the three personal distinctives of deity seem to denote perfect happiness which lies in that glorious and inexpressible communion the persons have with each other. John Owen states the profound truth in this way. In the state of infinite eternal being and goodness, antecedent unto any act of wisdom and power, without himself to give existence unto other things. God was and is and shall be eternally in himself all that he will be. And he will be this unto all eternity. His blessedness, happiness, soul satisfaction, as well as all other, his infinite perfections were absolutely the same before the creation while there was nothing but himself and as they are since he hath made all things for the blessedness of God Owen says consists in the ineffable mutual in being of the three holy persons in the same natures with the imminent reciprocal actings of the Father and the Son in this eternal love and complacency of the Spirit. Fifthly, God's infinite is contentment, satisfaction and pleasure arises from his love and kindness which is expressed, of course, in loving himself, but in election, in loving a people, in redemption, in seeking their release from evil, in vocation, in calling them into the greater enjoyment of himself. And if we read scripture aright, God finds pleasure in manifesting that love to others and leading them to himself that they might enjoy in him what he has always enjoyed in himself. So the blessedness of God is not something exclusive to God. It is something shared with his people. Every soul of man by sinning merits everlasting pain. But thy love, without beginning, formed and fixed salvation's plan. Countless millions shall in life through Jesus reign. Pause, my soul. Adore and wonder. Ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace has put me in the number of the Saviour's family. Hallelujah. Thanks 
eternal love to thee. And love would share God with the people undeserving of it. And love has shared God in Christ with a people. And what love is this? Not to enjoy it exclusively himself, but to share it with those who are the objects of his grace and his mercy. That not only God might be blessed, but others may be blessed in him. Six point. In 1693, Benjamin Keach published a children's catechism which became known as Keach's Catechism. Its first question was, who is the first and best of beings? And the answer given was, God is the first and best of beings. And there's something very attractive and alluring in such a statement. God is the best of beings. No wonder he's happy in himself. He is the best. And no wonder all his overtures of grace are to share himself with men because only in him will they be blessed. He is described as the incomparable God who is like unto thee, O Lord incomparably glorious in his being, in his life, in his attributes, in his fullness, in his greatness, in his holiness. He is incomparably happy in himself and it is in him where we shall find our happiness. He will not allow anything to happen in any part of his dominions which will not serve and promote his purpose to make himself and his people happy. Well, that is the doctrine of divine blessedness. Now the experience of it more briefly. And this is challenging. If we profess to be the people of God, should we not be much happier than what we are? I read a lovely story of a family that went on holiday and they were on a camping site and at the the end of the camping site there was a field and there was a donkey in the field and the little girl, six or seven years of age, found this donkey the first day they arrived on the holiday site and she played with this donkey and talked to the donkey and uh, she appreciated the donkey's presence and she returned into the caravan at the end of the day and very thoughtful, very pensive and she said to her father, she said I think that donkey in the field is a Christian so the father said 
why do you think he's a Christian? Because he looks miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, friends, whichever denomination or association you are attached to, don't let it ever be said of you. He's a miserable Christian. What a witness to a child. He even thinks a miserable donkey and he must have Christian connections because that misery is associated with Christianity in her limited view and understanding. I think we should be happy if we know this God and know his presence and our happiness should be comforting to others. I'm sure you've all been in the presence of people who are thoroughly miserable. And uh, I can think of poor souls that I've ministered to in the past, over the years, and they've been melancholics, and there's nothing you can say to get them out of that state of darkness. And they, they seem to love to be miserable, you know, and. Of course, it it warrants and and it has my pity and my sympathy. But it shouldn't be with a Christian, should it? If we know the God we have described as our God, then it it is grossly incompatible for us to be miserable. In that body of divinity I mentioned by Edward Lee, he says, God is most blessed, yea, blessedness itself. He is blessed in himself. God's happiness is that attribute whereby God hath all fullness of delight and contentment in himself and needs not anything to make him happy. And then he goes on, he is the fountain of all blessedness in others. How can he be but infinitely blessed himself? He makes all others happy in him. We must learn, he says, to seek happiness where it is, even in God. In his favorable, unchanging person. The object of the believer's joy is God himself. What makes me happy? The short answer is God makes me happy in life and in death in loss and in gain, in solitude and in company, in this world and in the next. God makes me happy. In view of this, then suffer these closing exhortations. I exhort you, brethren, to heed these exhortations. 
and to involve yourself and yourselves in a quest tonight for ultimate happiness in God. And it's important that we put it in that way. We're not seeking happiness for happiness sake. That's the cult of Christian hedonism, so-called. Our happiness, we know, is in him. And therefore the first search of my heart must be for God. And when I find God, I find the treasure of unalloyed joy in him. So seek God. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Happy is he whose God is the Lord. And it follows, doesn't it, that if our misery is to be alienated from God, (coughs) our happiness is to be restored to God in knowledge, experience, and bliss. Seek God in his favor then. Secondly, Ensure that you have chosen him above all others to be your happiness. Not chosen happiness and so you turn to God, but choose God and you will be inevitably happy. Choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. And that choice that God is your God. He is your Father and He will care for you. He is your Redeemer as the Son and He will free you from all evil. He is your Comforter as the Spirit and in Him is therefore complete joy. I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. So seek him. Ensure that you have chosen him to be your portion and your inheritance. And turn away from this world in all its godliness and in all its deceit. And say to yourself, here is not my rest. Turn to God and say, I rest in thee. Thou art my resting place. Ensure you have chosen him. Thirdly, rest not until you find happiness in union and communion with God. It is not a an experience once and for all, a temporal fleeing something which is transient but it's a happiness to be consolidated and developed and the happiness of which I speak will find its maturity in union or connection to God and in communion with him 
sharing life with him. Thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And as a bride finds enjoyment in the company of her husband, so the believer finds enjoyment in the conscious feeling of God's presence and his love and his goodwill toward them. That is union. That is communion. Hence the scripture says, Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Fourth exhortation. Such happiness it is to know that he gives himself unto us. To quote from Hosea, I will betroth thee unto me forever in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. And I will say, I will say this was not my people, but thou art my people. And thou shalt say, thou art my God. And so we become his as he gives himself to us and we receive him as our portion forever. And we are bound to him in the bands of eternal love. Never to be separated. Never to be detached. Never to be lost. Once in him, in him forever. Thus the eternal covenant stands. Fifthly, this happiness is increased and is perfected by mutual cohabitation. 1 John 3, 24, He dwells in us by His Spirit, which He hath given us. He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him. So He is joined to us, and we are joined to Him, and we are finding out every day what that means and I'll tell you what it means happiness in knowing the God who is all you could ever desire in knowing the God who makes up for the loss of the whole world in knowing a God who will never diminish in his wonder to your soul but with the passing of the years will become dearer and better and more wonderful to you. Cohabitation. Seventhly, all unhappiness consists in dissimilitude. The more unlike God we are, the more unhappy we are. It follows, my friends, that the more like him we are in holiness and in godliness, the happier we will be. 
if God is supreme happiness in his holy being, then we have ultimate happiness in being like him. And that's the cultivation of holiness of life and godliness of heart. There's no substitute for that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and in the sight of God they will be happy. Happy forever. A few points to conclude. The eighth exhortation is this. God, we know, finds pleasure in the salvation of sinners. And insofar as we are committed to this very thing, we shall find our joy. What does the scripture say? Have I any pleasure at all in the wicked that he should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways? And live as I live, saith the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he, but the wicked may turn from his evil way and live. God has a happiness which is never fuller than when he sees sinners turning to him. And if we can emulate God in this way so that we have that same concern for their souls, a love for the well-being of souls, a desire that they'll be blessed in the salvation of Christ, if we have the heart of God, we shall know the happiness of God. For he finds happiness in that very thing. I wonder if that's what is meant in Luke 15, where we read several times, there shall be joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. You, know, you can say there'll be joy amongst the redeemed of the Lord uh, as they see husbands uh, converted, children converted. You can say that there will be joy amongst the angels of heaven because they look into these things and love what they see. But ultimately, Joy in heaven is joy in the God who inhabits heaven. And there is joy in God seeing sinners turn to him. And my friends, I wonder if that's one of the one of the great losses in our churches. We've lost the thrill of hearing of conversions. We've lost. Now I remember being in a meeting in Wales once, and the news the news came in that a man who'd been prayed for by the church uh, for years had, the night before, by reason of a visit to the pastor to his home, had professed faith, and he couldn't keep it, you know, to to share with the church in a natural way. And so he got up in the meeting. I was preaching. He got up in the meeting. He says, "My friend, something I've got to share with you." Fred was converted last night and I have never been in a meeting and witnessed such joy which came like a wave of other people and, and they were blissful you know if, if somebody come in and said you've just won 
£100,000. They wouldn't have touched this. They were so happy that this man had been converted and therefore united again with his wife and with his family and with the church people. So happy. And surely that should be an experience we, we should know. When we make every attempt to win people and persuade them to believe and to come to Christ, when they do, we can't contain it. We can't conceal it. We must tell the church they've been converted by the grace of God. And that happiness not only brings joy to God in heaven, but joy to his people on earth, because their joy is his joy. Ninthly and nearly lastly, it rejoices God's heart to create and to effect the revival of the church. That's what we read. We read this. There shall no man be tempted, forsaken, saying, Neither shall thy land be turned desolate, but thy land shall be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, because the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy God shall be married to thee. Who goes to a wedding to cry? Well, some women do, I suppose. My eldest grandson was married two weeks ago. I, I was so pleased. He was marrying in the faith, a lovely Christian girl. And my eldest grandson. It was such a happy day. It made it more happy for me that dear Jill was able to go there. She didn't know what was going on, but she knew it was a happy day. And... Uh, the emotion of happiness was not only in my heart, but in hers. It lit up her face. I was happy because she was happy. They were happy because we were both happy. It was happiness. And when God revives his church, he brings her from the doldrums. He brings her from the darkness of almost despair. He brings her from, from the darkness of emptiness and loss and weakness into the glory of his presence. And those who have written of revival say it was as if God walked the streets of the town so that you could tangibly feel the presence of God as you walked down the high street. God was there and God was happy to be there never more happy than when the church appears in her beauty and in her glory when he restores Zion to the state in which he would have her be the revival of the church rejoices the heart of God and that's why you and I need to pray for revival, to do everything and we can to bring that revival to pass.
though it be a sovereign work of God. Because if God is happy in revival, we shall be happy in revival. We need the presence of God. Because our God is our exceeding joy. And if God be returned to the church, what a difference it will make. It'll light the lamps of the church, I tell you. Just imagine what it will be for the preacher to be in the pulpit and to feel as he's never felt before the presence of God with him. John Brown was said in his trials to preach and Hume the skeptic was there and he said that man preached as if the son of God was at his elbow. And he was. And what a difference to preaching. Instead of coming down from the pulpit feeling that was the worst ever. Why do I bother? You come down from the pulpit thinking God made that such a blessed sermon to me and to others. God was there. That was our joy. And then in the prayers of God's people such a such a sense of prayerfulness. Everybody praying for more of God to be manifested and to be displayed and feeling the nearness of God's presence, the drawing near of God, nearer and nearer. William Tennant of New England in the woods sought God and it became so much a burden to his soul and so overwhelming that he cried out and he said, Lord, enough, enough, I can take no more. What would it be if our congregations cried like that? We can't take any more. God is in this place. This is the gate of heaven. The very house of God. What a difference it it would mean to the singing of praise if God inhabited the praises of Israel as he promises to be. Praise would take off, wouldn't it? I love coming here because I love to hear these psalms sung by men who I'm sure none of you claim to be brilliant vocalists but you sing from the heart and I see that and it makes me glad to see you singing what you feel and I tell you there's no experience like psalm singing in such a context as this this is near to heaven in the suburbs of glory to hear men sing some of you lift your eyes to heaven and you leave your books and you're away (laughs) thank God for that and then the preaching to be not in word only but in demonstration of the spirit and in power and something unusual overtakes us and We didn't plan this. We didn't prepare it. It's not in our notes. But we were carried by the Spirit to preach as we have not preached for many, many years. Our words were grave. They were arresting. They were heart-reaching. And they were blessed to many souls. The whole Sabbath revived and the Lord's people revived and what moved God to bring that about because he loves to see it because the happiness of these people are being found in him and he's so glad that he's the fountain 
of their blessedness as well as his own. Well, my last point. You'll be relieved, brother. (laughs) That's the third one, one, yeah. (coughs) The exhortation. God is represented as supremely happy in heaven. In his heavenly kingdom. Do you remember in the parable? The Lord said, Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. The blessedness of God in heaven. And it will not only be his experience, but ours to enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The redeemed shall return and come to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What's the highest hope a mortal can have? to be where everyone is happy where God is happy where his people are happy where we are happy now in a sense we can know that before we get there you remember the said of Richard Sibbs the Puritan his heart was in heaven before he was and we can by faith be there anticipating what we shall know and there this sermon will seem painfully inadequate because there you will see for yourself the God who is most blessed and you will have a place in his presence to be blessed with him and all we together will be the happiest company that ever lived in earth or in heaven. In the 13th century there were words spoken which were turned into a poem and I close with this. Jerusalem the golden with milk and honey blessed Beneath thy contemplation, sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not, what joys await us there, what radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. Oh, sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. Oh, sweet and blessed country that eager hearts expect. Jesus, in mercy bring us to that dear land of rest who art with God the Father and Spirit ever. 
blessed. The blessedness of God. May we have the foretaste of it now and the fullness of it then. The next time I may see some of you will be in the glory of heaven. And you'll look never happier than when you appear there. And I shall have lost all my grief and sadness and sorrow. Lost in the joy of God. That's the ultimate end, my friends, to find God. And he has a treasure to share with us. And the treasure is his unfailing joy. To find him is happiness. Don't seek happiness. Seek God. And when you've found him, you will rejoice forevermore. So may it be. Amen.